0: What a great song. What a challenging song if we take it seriously. Will the church be ready when the bridegroom comes to take his bride, which is his church? I've said it many times before, and our church is no exception. I believe many are going to be surprised and not the good kind of surprise. It's just far too easy in our culture and our day to commit ourselves to not a biblical Christian faith, but a designer religion that fits and suits our purposes, our needs, our wants, our desires. That's not a church that's ready. We all need to take it to heart. And not think about the church, they, them, and those, and the big church collective, but me and my walk with Jesus Christ. Is it a faith that is based on the inspired, infallible, and errant authoritative Word of God in its entirety? We are in 1 Samuel chapter 18, and my goal and my purposes, which have been from day one, even before I was pastor of this church, are to prepare God's people for that day when He comes. And if you've ever read the book of Revelation, and if you've been here in faith any time at all, I trust that you have, because we are all endeavoring to read through the Scriptures annually, aren't we? (laughs) Just read the seven letters to the seven churches to refresh your memory. Seven churches, which I believe are representative of all of the churches combined of all time. Only two of the seven churches mentioned were given commendation, and the other five were all given stark, dire warning. Will we be ready? David has killed the giant going back quite a few weeks which meant there was a reward to be given as the King Saul had stipulated, the man that kills the Philistine warrior will get my daughter's hand in marriage. David ends, being the one, ends up being the one that successfully slays Goliath. But thus far in the text, there hasn't been any reward given to him. We are in chapter 18. We're going to make quite a few tracks today going through chapter 20. Because the nature of the historical narrative at this point is that if I were to just take it verse by verse, all I'd be doing is basically reading it and restating what was said in the text that is obvious. I'm not going to do that to anybody. But there's a lot here. David has been growing in his popularity ever since he slayed Goliath. He took the army of God out and routed the Philistines. And he just grew in power and might and strength because the Lord God was behind him. This is what we read in chapter 18, verse 17. Then Saul said to David, Here's my daughter Mirav. I will give her to you as a wife. Only be a valiant man for me and fight the Lord's battles. Whoa, 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 whoa. Wait, 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 wait. David, I hope you had that in writing the first time. You hear what Saul is doing here? Wait, he was supposed to be given Saul's daughter after killing Goliath. And now he's saying, oh, there's one more little thing you got to do. And let's go out again in battle and fight and kill some more Philistines. And then I'll give you my daughter's hand. We are going to be given, continuing from the past several weeks, snippets of seeing the character and the heart of Saul as compared to David. Saul thought in his promise to David, uh, promise in quotes, about giving him his daughter's hand with this latest commission. He says, my hand shall not be against him, but let the hand of the Philistines be against him. You see, his sole purpose and motive is to get David killed. But David said to Saul, now listen to David's heart. Who am I? And what is my life or my father's family in Israel that I should be the king's son-in-law? So it came about at that time that when Merab, Saul's daughter, should have been given to David, that she was given to Adriel, the Mahalathite for a wife. Saul's character, a lying cheat with duplicitous motives and murderous intent. And David, a man of humility, who says he's not worth Taking the king's daughter to be himself, he doesn't. He's not of a prestigious lineage. His father isn't a big, grand name. He's poor. He just doesn't fit. And so Saul goes ahead and gives away Mirab, verse twenty. But now Michal, Saul's other daughter, who we read, loved David. And when they told Saul, the thing was agreeable to him. And so Saul thought, I will give her to him that she may become a snare to him and that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. Again, he hasn't changed his M.O. This is just even more convenient yet. Oh, my daughter actually loves this guy. See, arranged marriages, but she loves David. Does he give a rip about that? No, his goal is to get David killed. Therefore, Saul said to David, for a second time, you may be my son-in-law today. And then Saul commanded his servants, speak to David secretly, saying, behold, the king delights in you and all his servants love you. Now, therefore, become the king's son-in-law so that Saul's servants spoke these words to David. But David said, again, is it trivial in your sight to be the king's son-in-law since I am a poor man and I am lightly esteemed? Again, David's character and humility shine, but Saul will not be dissuaded because his goal is singular and it is getting rid of his competition, which is David. Verse 25, Saul sends his servants back to David. Well, thus you shall say to David, the king does not desire any dowry. So, see, he tracks on David's words that, you know, forget the fact that you're not worth it and this, that, and the other thing. He says, I'm poor. Well, he takes it. Oh, I see. His hang-up is that he can't afford a dowry. A dowry is something that was done a long time ago, but it's still done in the Middle East, I believe, in certain situations. And a dowry is basically paying off the father of the bride. If you want to marry my daughter, it's going to cost you. And it may cost you 30 sheep and 15 cattle or 20 acres or whatever it is, but you had to pay what was called the bride price. And David's like, yeah, I I can't afford any dowry. So he says, tell David don't to worry about a dowry. Oh, but listen how he continues. But he desires, and because of the uh, nature of the makeup of the congregation this morning with our younger ones, I've taken editorial liberty here to sanitize this a bit. If you're familiar with the passage, you understand why. I didn't want to explain that. David desires, uh, sorry, but the king doesn't want a, diary, a dowry, but he desires that you bring back something very near and dear to one, 100 of the Philistine soldiers to take vengeance on the king's enemies. Now, again, we're told Saul planned to make David fall by the hand of the Philistines. This is only ever a scheme to get David executed. Saul and David could hardly be more different Saul is self-absorbed, Saul is self-aggrandizing, self-seeking, self-centered, and Saul, above everyone else, including his family and his daughters, as you'll see, loves himself. David, on the other hand, is humble, meek, he's a servant, he's obedient, and above all things, he loves the Lord. What stands out to me in this passage, maybe because I'm a father of two daughters, is Saul's absolute lack of concern for his daughter, Michal. Michal loved David. And Saul, her own father, is merely using her as a way to get David out of the picture. The fact that she is going to wind up, if he's able to carry through on this, wind up a widow, even before she's married, is no concern to this loser king. Nice guy. Saul's demand for David to bring back Something special of 100 enemy warriors is merely because he knows that in order for David to be successful winning his bride, he will have to kill those 100 warriors. They're not about to give it up voluntarily. But, of course, Saul is not thinking clearly, as I explained last week. So David goes on his mission to the Philistines, and instead... I just, There's so many things that go through my mind here. Of bringing back those special, those strange little trinkets from a hundred Philistine warriors. David comes back with 200 in a pouch. Ew. <laughs> we know that the reason for David's success is totally because the Lord is behind David. And as the apostle Paul will note many centuries later, if God is for us, who can be against us? The text tells us that now Saul was even more afraid of David. So here we are, though we're in the cheap seats, as they sometimes call them. We're up in 2018. We have the whole view of Scripture: their their past, their present, and their future, which they are oblivious to, of course, but we are not. And what we see is we see Saul and we see David and we see the Lord at work behind the scenes here. And I believe that we tend to look at Saul as being so absolutely thick. And we wonder, well, how can he possibly be so thick? I mean, he's already tried to kill David. He's already tried to do this. And every, every turn already, he's being thwarted. Why can't he see it? But I tell you that we meaning you and me. Repeat this in our lives, ourselves, in big things and in little things. As clueless as Saul trying to deal with life challenges by what? Well, instead of, again, going to the Inspired, infallible, and authoritative word of God who's given us everything pertaining to life and godliness as Peter tells us. Instead we think, oh, you know what? We can, we can get through this. We can conquer this. We can, I can know how to do this. I just, I just gotta grip my teeth harder. I just need greater cunning or I just need more strength. I gotta try harder. When what we need is to run to the shelter of the Almighty and meditating on His ways and His counsel for life. Joshua one eight is a book that I memorized with my children, one of their early, early, when they were infants. Memory verses. And I butchered it a little bit in the first service. It's, this book of the law shall not depart out of thy mouth, but thou shalt meditate therein day and night, that thou mayest observe to do according to all that is written therein. For then thou wilt have, make thy ways prosperous, and then thou wilt have good success. You might be thinking, what's all that thou wilts and the masts and Back then, I was a baby Christian, and all I had was a King James Bible, so that's King James Version. The psalmist would write in Psalm 91, he who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. Saul is scared. He is nervous. He's panicking, but instead of repenting, he's regrouping meaning regrouping to another strategy another tactic even more ridiculous than the previous we go into chapter 19 verse 1 now Saul told Jonathan his son and all his servants to put David to death but Jonathan Saul's son greatly delighted in David we spent two separate or yeah two separate sermons totally on the relationship of Jonathan and David because of the perverse misunderstandings and and truly blasphemous uh, pretensions that are made out there about their relationship, none of which is true. So Saul is just getting more desperate to where he knows of the relationship and how close David and Jonathan are. And yet now he's telling Jonathan he's going to solicit his services in murdering his enemy. This isn't just a reach by a desperate man. This is insanity. Jonathan obviously protests the king's decree and he wants to know why? What what in the world has David done? He's all he's ever done is to serve you honorably in everything. And verse six tells us Saul listened to the voice of Jonathan Hmm. And Saul vowed as the Lord lives, he shall not be put to death. Now, is Saul genuine or is he disingenuous here? The safe money would be on disingenuous, but honestly, in light of the very next verse, I think at this moment in time that he is absolutely sincere. Remember I told us a couple of weeks ago or maybe last week and the week before, what have you, that due to the demonic spirit that God sends to afflict him, he's not often in his right mind. And so one day he's a pro-David lover of David. He's the great guy, the one who consoles my soul with his heart. And the next day he's looking to whack him. So David goes out. David continues to have more success against the Philistines and the Lord sends out an evil spirit to Saul as foretold repeatedly. Verses 9 and 10 now has a very familiar ring to it. Saul's once again seated in very close proximity to David, his arch rival. They're there at basically a dinner table. And Saul once again has his spear and his hand on the spear. And he tries to pin David to the wall, literally, but fails again. But Saul's not giving up. He's determined to get rid of David once and for all in the morning. Using David's wife, his daughter, Michal. Mikel doesn't want any part of this. It's her husband. And so she warns her husband and Mikel helps him to escape by putting a dummy in his bed and then tells Saul's henchman to go back and tell dad that my husband's just, he's too sick to come to the table today. Yeah, he can't make it today. So Saul gets word of that and he says, you go back and you bring his whole stinking bed with him in it here. <laughs> he realizes he's been duped again. He discovers that it's a ruse that Mechel actually helped David to escape to Ramah. And Saul asks Mechel, Why have you deceived me? Really, Dad? Why have I deceived you? Because you want to murder my husband? Telling you. The rest of chapter 19 is all about the continued ongoing pursuit of David by Saul, which ceases in a very strange occurrence, which I don't have time to go into this morning, which really means I have no clue, but that's my way of getting around it, where Saul goes to Ramah, and we're told there himself that he falls into a divinely induced ecstatic trance amidst the other prophets. But what is significant there is that in the course of that, Saul sheds his robe... We go, oh, big deal. But we have to think back to a couple of weeks ago. The shedding of his robe, as when he tore Samuel the high priest's robe from him, he was tearing the kingdom away from himself. And now he himself has shed his kingly authority before all to see. Stripped of his robe, he is definitively now the ex king of God's people. And the Lord's plan to have David take over is marching right down the timeline that God has orchestrated. Chapter 20. David is now in the presence of Jonathan. And he asked Jonathan, John, look, I mean, you're around your dad much more than I am. You, you know his, I assume, his kind of his, his mind. and everything. What did I do? I don't understand why he wants to put me to death. And Jonathan, and this kind of baffles me a bit, Jonathan is astonished that David would think such a thing. What? No, my dad's not out to kill you. Huh? All evidence to the contrary. Sure, my dad has a temper and he gets a bit carried away at times, but David says, yeah, he's only tried to kill me from point-blank range and he's only solicited the help of my wife to kill me. I tell you, there's hardly a step between me and death. So David verse five says to Jonathan, behold, tomorrow is the new moon. And it's a time when I'm, I'm supposed to come in and sit down and eat with the king. But here's what's going to happen. Let me go that I may hide myself in the field until the third evening. If your father misses me at all, then say to him, David earnestly asked leave of me to run to Bethlehem, his city, because it's the yearly sacrifice there for the whole family. Now, if Saul says, it's good, your servant will be safe. Great. But if he is very angry, know that he has decided on evil. Therefore deal kindly with your servant, Jonathan, for you have brought your servant, into a covenant of the Lord with you, previous chapters. But if there is iniquity in me, if I have truly done something to your father that I just can't fathom, I'm not aware of, then let's stop it right here, and you put me to death yourself, for why should you even bring me to your father? So David is getting worn out of this this cat and mouse game with Saul. Verse 9. Jonathan says, David, David, no, far be it from you. For if I should indeed learn that evil has been decided by my father to come upon you, then wouldn't I tell you about it? And David said to Jonathan, well, who will tell me if your father answers you harshly? Meaning I'm not there, you're there, you can't be seen with me and everything else. So, so okay, if, if that's the deal, how, how are we going to pull this off? And this is where they now go undercover into special ops territory. Verses 11 through 29 are David and Jonathan's working out of this whole picture that's just been laid out, and their plan and their intentions for communicating whatever Saul determines, and Jonathan determines by his reaction to David being missing. So David is to go out and he's to hide in a field. And when Jonathan finally learns whatever Saul's plans are for David, Jonathan says i'm going to go out into the field like I would normally do with my bow and arrow And i'm going to do a little archery practice and they would bring with them I'll call him an arrow retriever. It was one of the household servants And the job the sole task of the household servant was Jonathan being the son of the king would say okay boom arrow boom arrow boom arrow And when he was all done having his little fun Then the arrow retriever would run out and find the arrows and bring them back So he said david here's what we'll do you're going to be out in the field hiding I'm going to find out what my dad's really thinking. And when I shoot the arrows and my arrow retriever goes out to get him, regardless of where he is, I'm going to say, no, 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 no. You're not even close. Keep going. You you keep going. Keep going. They're out there. Keep going. Then you will know that my father has every intention of killing you. They go, okay, got it. Boom. Going to work. So the first day of the day that David should be showing up at breakfast with Saul, David's a no-show. And, like instructed, J- Jonathan makes up some reason. But then the second day rolls around. David doesn't show up the second time, and this time Saul wants some answers. And when Jonathan tells him their made-up story, we read in verse 20, uh, chapter 20, verse 30, Saul's anger burned against Jonathan, his own son, and he said to him, You son of a perverse <laughs> rebellious woman oh he's angry and he has a potty mouth and he should have some hot sauce now you know culture changed over the years in my day the weapon of choice of my parents for such things was a nice big fat cake bar of soap and my mom prided herself ...on how she would administer it. Oh, yes, we've heard the stories many times. Like, we don't remember, Mom. And she would take the bar, stick it in my siblings' mouths. I never had to have this happen. And jam the soap up against your front teeth... ...and then scrape the bar on the way out... ...so that all this soap just comes off and it's wedged between your teeth. So now you got to work at it to get it out, which makes it even worse... I kind of, in truth, grew a little affectionate toward life boys, kind of heady, piquant kind of aftertaste. If you Oh, yeah. Okay. Some of you watched the Christmas story. Good. No, eh, whatever. Verse 30. Do I not know that you are choosing the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of your mother's nakedness? We don't appreciate, lost in translation, what an absolutely nasty... Disgusting, despicable uh insult to say the least, this is not toward saul's wife david uh, Jonathan's mother, but toward Jonathan, for as long as the son of Jesse lives on earth, neither you nor your kingdom will be established. Jonathan's well aware of that. Therefore now send and bring David to me, for he must surely die. But Jonathan answered Saul, his father, and he said to him, Why should he be put to death? What has he done? And then Saul picked up his spear and he hurls it at his own son Jonathan to strike his own son down. So Jonathan knew that his father (laughs) really had decided to put David to death. And then Jonathan arose from the table in fierce anger and did not eat food on the second day of the new moon for he was grieved over David because his father had so dishonored him. From verse 35 now to the end of the chapter, we see how the bow and arrow arrangement all went down and the communication they devised, it all went right as planned to warn David of imminent danger being played out. When the lad was gone, that is Jonathan's arrow retriever, once he was gone and clear, David rose from the south side and he fell on his face to the ground and bowed three times. Now understand the heir apparent to the throne, King David, already declared king by God Almighty, approaches Jonathan, who really is a nobody, and falls to the ground in front of him as an act of submission and respect, bowing three times before him. Again, the heart of David, such a man of humility and they kissed each other and they wept together. But David wept the more again, just a little side note because the disgusting innuendo is there from the liberal theologians out there. And unfortunately, increasingly not even from liberal theologians, just people who want to make the word say what they want it to say because of cultural changes and all of that. They go, yeah, see more kissing between these two guys. Okay. Get a clue. All right. I just got that today is the last 21st day of the Tour de France. All takes place over in, you guessed it, Europe. Okay? And I have seen almost parts, little snippets of every one of those stages. And at the end of every stage, which is like a race in and of itself... The awesome, incredibly physically fit racers, without exception, are greeted by their male coaches and their male teammates swarming them, and they are embracing and they are kissing each other and kissing each other, and there is absolutely nothing untoward or suspect about it. And to this day, if you've been over to Europe recently right? We were in Italy once, and oh my goodness, hey, mm, 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 mm. hi, who are you? From the United States, dude, get a grip, you know? You get used to it. It's kind of cool, you know? If you're a huggy touchy, which I am, I'd hate to be one of those prickly porcupine kind of people that. and living in Europe. Maybe they don't exist that way there, I don't know. So anyway, there's absolutely nothing suspect about their relationship. The passage continues. Jonathan said to David, Go in safety, inasmuch as we have sworn to each other in the name of the Lord, saying, The Lord will be between me and you, and my descendants and your descendants forever. Then he rose and departed while Jonathan went into the city. Here is what this comes down to today for us. The call of God was on David to be king. The call of God was on Jonathan to not be the next king. And in fact, to be David's greatest supporter and earthly protector, even from his own father. Both clearly called by God to be and to do where and what they were doing. They were being obedient to their high calling to their king and their Lord not King Saul, but king of heaven and earth. And what we should see among other things is that being called by God, just in the time we've spent with David and with Jonathan, that being called by God is not necessarily easy or even successful, at least not until the perspective of the long view looking back. Now for the reality check of life. From the day that David was anointed by Samuel, his life was marked with, no skip to the loo, my darlings. No unicorns and rainbows, but nothing but turmoil and threats on his life and being uprooted in heaven, go out and hide and humble himself in the fields and everything else when he is the heir apparent to the throne. According to some preachers today, though, David should have been having the his best life now. Yeah. Oh, I was right. Get that off of there. We are told categorically that David was called to the throne by divine decree. So there was no mistaking the call, but that didn't mean ease, nor did it mean palpable success in so many ways, at least not then. Even though David was called by God, Saul didn't just magically lay down his crown and get out of the way. Saul had this nasty tendency, you see, of doing things his way, even when God was clear on what he wanted him to do. Remember back in chapter 15, he was about to go out and battle against the Philistines, and God told him, you know, you're going to win, okay? Don't worry about that. But God told him exactly what he was to do and not do once they went into battle. And what was that? Saul, take no prisoners. Take no animals. Take no spoil, take none of the devoted things, the things that are devoted to destruction, meaning you come back with no souvenirs, nothing, zip, nada. It was not ambiguous. But Saul had a better idea than God. He goes, he conquers, and what's he do? He takes the sheep and the oxen and the choicest things that were devoted to destruction. Why? To offer them in sacrifice to the Lord. We say, oh, well, you know, okay, you know, he skipped a little on the minutiae there, but oh, look at his heart to offer sacrifice to the Lord. And that was his justification for doing it his way rather than God's way. You're wondering, who is that? That is Frank Sinatra. Do you know what his greatest hit of all time is? I did it my way. An individual, I remember this from many years ago, I heard it on the radio, I'm pretty sure. He was some preacher guy and he was talking and he said, I believe that that song, I did it my way, is going to be the theme song of hell. Yeah, and this has been and is the singular downfall of the human race, including people who wear the name of Jesus, including people who are religious, including people who are spiritual. Remember Eve? From the very start. There she is in the garden. From the fruit of the tree, which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat from it, for in the day that you do, you will die. Eve pipes up. But when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, but when she saw that it was a delight to the eyes, but when she saw that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate. I did it my way. I cannot enumerate how many times over the years in varied and sundry situations of people of faith in life course asking for biblical counsel and receiving it and then rejecting it outright. Sometimes even acknowledging that, yeah, I know that's what it says. And then rejecting it out of hand. Well, I know the Bible says, and then you know it comes, but... I know God says I hate divorce, but I know intimacy outside of marriage is against god 's perfect wisdom, but I know that certain things that I view online or elsewhere is immoral, but I know same sex relations of an imminent, in an intimate nature are clearly forbidden, but I know God wants me worshipping corporately with His church when it meets, but I know God wants me to tithe, but I know God wants me to forgive, but I know God wants me to be baptized, but and you can go on and on and on. And Saul says, I know the Lord said, do not take anything from the Philistines, but. You remember Samuel's reply to him, 1522. Saul has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord. Behold to obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed than the fat of rams. No, Saul. There are no buts. And you see, Saul was religious. Saul was very religious. He was a faithful follower of Judaism. He was a faithful Jew. Saul was spiritual. <laughs> In some ways, I don't care to experience. And Saul was chronically habitually, repetitively, over and over again with redundancy, disobedient. David, on the other hand, had that obedience thing going pretty well. He accepted the timetable established by God for God's plan for David ascending to the throne. Tempting, though it had to be salivating to pull rank on old Saul maybe I'm channeling my personality there, probably. The delay in David's coming into the fullness of his kingdom, into the fullness of his call, was absolutely God's training ground and God's timing. And all that David went through while in waiting established him and taught him about God and his faithfulness and more, all of which later on down the line makes David's tragic, eventual sin with Bathsheba, all the more catastrophic. At the end of the day, do you know what the fundamental difference between David and Saul was? In chapter 13, we were first told, verse 14, the Lord has sought out for himself a man after his own heart. And the Lord has appointed him as ruler over his people because you, Saul, have not kept what the Lord commanded you. Another way of saying this is that David had a living relationship with the living God. David had a heart and soul relationship with the living God. You know what Saul had? Very common, very common. Saul had a ceremonial relationship with God, going through the motions of the religious rituals, all of which, ironically, were designed to reveal God's own heart and mind to Saul and to all of mankind. Ceremonial relationship versus a heart and soul relationship with the living God. It makes all the difference, not just in the world, but in eternity. That's a long time. In the call upon your, we all have a call upon our life. I don't care if you you just received Christ an hour ago. There's a call upon your life. Probably don't know what it is yet, but we all have it. And when I say a call, I don't mean the one big supreme grand calling. Yes, I do believe that too. But I'm talking about many more minor things like getting up every day and just being, being, uh, um, you know, oh, so-and-so's been after me to go out to them with lunch. I just can't squeeze it in my schedule. But then the Holy Spirit breaks through and it's like, you know what? I I need you to go do that. Just go meet with them. And you're like, ah, but they're so annoying. I don't want to do it. (laughs) And he said, yeah, but I want you to do it. And so you throw in the towel and you squeeze it in. It's a big imposition, everything else. And you get there at the restaurant and guess what? they are no show. And you go, boy, did I misread that one? Maybe, but maybe not. Because you see, sometimes God puts these little minor calls upon us just to see that we see how we are going to respond. What we believe is a call upon us. Will we be obedient? Will we make excuses, find justifications, or will we do it my way? Baptism is just around the corner. And do you know, I have met people over the years, mature, I mean, absolutely, unquestionably mature, solid, really solid Christians who know the Bible and everything else. And we'll be in conversation. I've known them sometimes a decade, sometimes more than that. And it comes around to baptism. And I say something and they go, no, I've I've never been baptized. I'm like, wait, what? Why not? Oh, you know, we do the song and dance around the whole thing. Sometimes we get an explanation that's just really poor, uninformed theology as to why they didn't do it. This is just a little add-on to the message this morning. Baptism's around the corner. If you are a follower of Christ, if you are claiming to be a follower of Christ, and you are not, and you are not living in abject, habitual, knowing, chronic, repetitive sin, okay, because then you better rethink the whole thing about wait, what? No. If you are Christ follower, you need to be baptized. Jesus said, "Be baptized." Period. End of story. We could get theological and get lengthy, but Jesus said, do it. That's why you do it. I don't care how much you don't like it. I don't care how much you don't, you get nervous in front of people. Uh, uh." Hey, welcome to the club. Real quick, true story. If I let that gear me, if I did it my way, I would never be in this pulpit to this day. And I say that because the first several times I was preaching, I remember one, I was, I'm not exaggerating now. My legs were so weak, I thought I was going to collapse at the pulpit. So frightened and scared I was. And it was the worst sermon I'd ever heard in my life. And my dear wife, I've told this story before, but it's so awesome. I'll take the time. I'm always my hardest critic, right? And so part of me now, I mean, I knew it was so bad and everything else. I just thought... You're always hard on yourself. Maybe it, I mean, you know it was bad, but maybe it wasn't that bad. So Barb is sitting right here. I was a guest speaker at this church and it was part of my education at seminary. And I sat down next to her and she leans over to me while the guy's coming up, closing the server, whatever. And she says, I love you. (laughs) And in that moment, I knew it was that bad. And then I was, I was being paid, okay, by the church, $35, which back then was like $35. (laughs) And she leans over again. This is, you have to know Barb, this was so out of the blue and unlike her. First I love you and I'm like, oh, I'm dead. And then she leans over and she says, you don't have to take the money. Ah! and i remember after that praying dear lord in heaven i cannot do this and you're gonna have to do something if that's really the call you have on my life and some of you are thinking yeah you should have given back the money anyway let me have you stand thank you for your patience Little overtime, but hey, the kids are in here, right? Yeah, except for the nursery. Blame Pastor Ben for going so long on the announcements, alright? <laughs> Father in heaven, thank you for loving us, for knowing who we are and still loving us. And I do so pray that anyone, Lord, who claims to be yours and has not been baptized as a, as a conscious, knowing, uh, knowledgeable of the scriptures, person that they would follow you in believers baptism thank you for being our great God in your name we give thanks and praise amen